0: Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Sermon Podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. When you read the Bible, sometimes some verses stand out more than others, and upon further reading, something else will stand out. Well, today, First Pres Associate Pastor Tim Shaw reveals one of those situations in a well-known verse from the book of Mark. Mark. Well,
1: good morning, my name is Tim Shaw, one of the pastors here on staff. It's great to see you here. Hello to everybody uh, watching online. Uh, For a lot of the years that I uh, served on the staff of the First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, most of you know that I'm from California and I worked in that church for many, many years. um, There was a tradition that we celebrated every year on Palm Sunday. I have no fear, I've not lost it here this morning. I know we're about to enter Advent, and we're not getting ready for Holy Week and Easter. But every year on Palm Sunday, the adult choir and the children's choirs would lead the congregation in song as they processed into the sanctuary. And they would sing until all the choirs were up front with palm fronds in the air and with the congregation singing along with the choirs. If you'd been there, you would have seen kids waving palm branches in the air while they sang. Hopefully, they were not smacking one another with those palm branches. You would have also heard the sound of this massive pipe organ that First Press Berkeley has. By the end of that song, the building would be shaking with the sound of that incredible instrument. And where would I be on that Palm Sunday morning? Well, I was usually behind the palm branches on the platform in my big black pastor's robe, that we used to do that? Singing along. The song that we would sing together was, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Songs like that were written to remind us of what happened when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. On that day, people cheered as they lined the road. They spread their cloaks On the ground and threw palm branches in front of Jesus. They are making a way for the arrival of a new king. They shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I don't know whether you know it, but the word Hosanna is a political statement. Hosanna means save us, save us from all who are oppressing us, Jesus. Save us from the people in power who are making our lives miserable. Save us. And that is precisely what Jesus intended to do. He was just going to save them in a way that people did not expect. He was going to deliver them from their sins. He was inaugurating a new kingdom, his kingdom. Heaven was coming to earth And everything was beginning to change. I think there is something that we forget on Palm Sunday as we wave palm branches in the air and watch the children sing songs of praise. We tend to forget what happened next. Let's pray and then we'll look at what takes place right after that scene of Jesus entering the city. God, we pause and come to you and, and wait upon you. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for your grace and compassion and love. Thank you for extending yourself to us, for making a way for us to be in a relationship with you. And so, God, we ask that you would teach us today that you would be at work in our hearts, drawing us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem at the beginning of his final week before his crucifixion, he entered the city to reestablish prayer in his father's house, the temple in Jerusalem. Let's listen to this remarkable passage from the gospel according to Mark. These verses follow almost immediately... The verses that describe Jesus's entry into the city of Jerusalem. If you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? Mark chapter eleven, verses fifteen to nineteen. Then they—that's Jesus and his disciples—came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, They kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. When Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem at the beginning of his final week, he entered Jerusalem to reestablish prayer. Prayer. In the temple. But he wasn't the first to try and put prayer and worship at the center of Israel's life together. A thousand years before, King David entered the city of Jerusalem to do the very same thing. David's goal at the beginning of his reign as king was to put prayer and worship at the center of his kingdom. His nation at the time was facing all sorts of threats from surrounding nations and he had conflicts within his own country. So with all these challenges in view, David's first move as king was to put prayer and worship at the center of his people. His first move as king was to put prayer at the heart of the kingdom. That leadership strategy was the core and foundation of his plan. Before we take a look at that story from the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, I want to give you some background on how the staff of our church, along with other leaders, discerned that God was leading us to do the very same thing that David did. We are feeling called by God to prioritize prayer at the, as the central focus of our church. We already are a praying congregation, but could it be that God has more for us and that he is inviting us to renew our commitment to him to be a place of worship and prayer right at the center of our lives and our life together as a church. At the beginning of the year, uh, I shared a message with you on the ruthless elimination of hurry from our lives. Chris Pan picked up that theme in one of his sermons as well. That phrase, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, comes from a book with the title The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry that was written by author and pastor John Mark Comer. And that phrase comes from a conversation that Pastor John Ortberg had with one of his mentors, a man by the name of Dallas Willard. John Ortberg is a good friend of Pastor Dan's, of HIM and our church. Dallas Willard has gone on to be with Jesus, but his books remain. Here's the hot tip of the day. You want to be mentored by Dallas Willard. So let me encourage you to read his books if you aren't already. Start with The Divine Conspiracy or The Spirit of the Disciplines. But allow me to read a few paragraphs from John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. This is a bit of a review for some of you, but let me encourage you to hang in there, because what John Mark says here has everything to do with putting prayer in the center of our lives. He writes, I never got the chance to meet Dallas Willard, so the first time John Ortberg and I sat down in Menlo Park, I immediately started pumping him for stories we hit gold. Here's one I just can't stop thinking about. John, or Burke, calls up Dallas to ask for advice. It's the late 90s. And at the time, John was working at Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago, one of the most influential churches in the world. John himself is a well-known teacher and best-selling author, the kind of guy you figure pretty much has apprenticeship to Jesus down. But behind the scenes, he felt like he was getting sucked into the vortex of megachurch insanity. Comer adds, I could relate. So he calls up Willard and asks, what do I need to do to become the me I want to be? Let's pause here for a second from the reading. Let's think about that question. Have you ever asked yourself a question like that? What do I need to do to become the me I want to be? That, I think, is a question that's worth pondering. John Mark Comer continues, there was a long silence on the other end of the line. According to John Ortberg, with Willard, there's always a long silence on the other end of the line. Then Dallas Willard speaks. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Okay, would you indulge me just a little bit Let's try and say that sentence together, okay? It'll be on the screen. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Okay, let's change it up a little bit. Make it a little more personal. Let's say this version of that statement. I must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from my life. Okay, let's go back to the book. A little bit more from... John Mark. So John Ortberg then scribbles that line down in his journal. Sadly, if uh, this was before Twitter. Otherwise, it would have broken the internet. Then Ortberg asks, OK, what else? Another long silence. Then Willard says, there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. End of story. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry is a wonderful book and is helping me tremendously. That statement made by Dallas World hit me like a ton of bricks. When I heard it, I thought to myself, okay, that's a good thought, but what else? There must be so much more. Where well, there is a lot more, but the more that really matters begins right here when we get serious about eliminating hurry from our lives. The more I thought about this statement, its significance and importance, it really began to resonate with me more and more. John Mark Comer wrote, hurry is the root problem underneath so many of the symptoms of toxicity in our world. A year ago. If someone had asked me what the greatest challenge was to my spiritual life, I'm not sure what I would have said. If someone would have asked what the greatest challenge facing our church was, I don't think I would have said what Dallas Willard said about hurry, that hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life. How would you respond to that question about the greatest challenge to your spiritual life? I've come to the conclusion after thinking a lot about this, that Dallas Willard is correct. We must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives so that we can open up space to meet with God, to pray, to listen to his voice, to be refreshed and filled up by his spirit, to be forgiven, to live in greater freedom, to simply be in God's presence. We can't grow in any of that unless we make space for God. The battle for my day is either won or lost in the first 10 minutes of the day. I can recover if I blow it at the beginning of my day, but my life is always so much better when I win this early morning battle. When I roll out of bed at 5 a.m., the choice is either email or Emmanuel. Emmanuel. That's the choice. If I choose time with Emmanuel, the God who is with us, my day is usually so different. If my day starts with email and is consumed with to-do lists and my desire to check the news, and if I end up skipping time with God or cutting it short, then inevitably my day does not go as well. That's just my experience. Let me illustrate. A couple of weeks ago I was standing in a long line to order coffee, The line started inside the cafe and continued outside onto the walkway. As I was waiting patiently to upgrade my position in line from outside the cafe to inside, a couple opened the cafe doors and stepped in front of all the people lined up outside the cafe, including me. I don't think they did it on purpose. They were in a conversation with one another and just didn't realize what they had done. So I and the woman in front of me I think, kindly mentioned that there was a line. I hope it was spoken gently. The guy was apologetic. The woman stared at me with a stare that nearly burned my head off. No words, just a laser beam. I think because I had won the battle that morning and chose Emmanuel over email, I stayed calm and at peace. I had compassion for her because i know i still have some laser beams of my own at my own disposal i have much to learn and many ways that i need to grow as a disciple of jesus emmanuel or email the battle is won or lost in the first 10 minutes of my day i can recover but it makes a difference where i start If I hope to be an agent of the kingdom of God in the world, in my family, in my workplace, or wherever I go, my life must be centered and grounded in prayer. Spending time in prayer is the most important thing that I can do on any given day. If I want God's kingdom to show up in my life, in my relationships, in the world around me, then prayer must be at the center of my life. During a number of the discussions this summer among the staff, we felt led by God to make prayer the theme for 2023 and beyond. We also felt led to connect people in community through groups as one of our main strategies for growing and healing and restoring our lives and our life together. Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem to reestablish prayer in his father's house. And David entered Jerusalem as king to put prayer and worship at the center of their life together. Let's listen to 2 Samuel 6, verses 12 to 17. Here's a little context for that story. The Ark of the Covenant was the intersection for Israel between heaven and earth. It was there that God dwelled. The Ark of the Covenant, the place where the presence of God rested, uh, it had been captured by the Philistines. The Philistines were bitter enemies of the people of Israel. David decides he's going to bring the Ark back to his nation. Remember, this is one of the first things that David did as king. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. It was told to David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of the Lord. Obed-Edom was housing the ark temporarily in his home, but that's another story. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the household of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. As the ark of the Lord came to the city of David, that's Jerusalem, Michal, daughter of Saul, that's David's wife, Looked down out of the out of the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Verse sixteen is worthy of an entire sermon. <laughs> we can't go there today to unpack that relationship. Verse seventeen: They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent, and David had that uh, David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being before the Lord. From the moment that David was anointed king by Samuel, he waited seven years before doing what we just read. David's path to the throne was very unusual. Israel's first king was a man by the name of Saul. Saul was so threatened by David and so jealous of him that Saul spent most of his time trying to kill David. David was the great hero of the battle with the Philistine giant Goliath, and the people loved him. But Saul was, saw David as a threat and wanted to get rid of him. But Saul died in a battle along with David's good friend, Jonathan, who was Saul's son. That should have cleared the way for David to assume the throne, but it didn't. One of Saul's other sons seized the palace by force and defended it with a militia. And that imposter held it for seven years. So David has been preparing for this moment when he would be able to sit on the throne as king. He was preparing for that moment for seven years. That's a long time to think about and pray about what your first moves as king will be when that day finally arrives. That's a good long time to plan your triumphant entry into the city and what your leadership strategy will be. And when that day finally came, we just read about that, look at what David did. Pay particular attention to where he was in the procession as he and the priests and the other leaders brought the ark up to the city of Jerusalem. Notice what David was wearing and pay particular attention to where he placed the ark of the covenant. First, where is David in this procession? In David's world, a king would normally be at the back of the procession, because the king was the main focus of an inaugural procession. Do you remember the Disney film Aladdin, with Prince Ali entering the city with the genie to woo the princess? Where is Prince Ali? He's at the back of the procession in all his glory. Dancers, swordsmen, fantastic animals, and riches pave the way for the arrival of Prince Ali. Because that's where the person of honor is in a procession like this. You know, we do the same thing. For example, where will Santa be this Thursday in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade? He's not in the front leading a procession of hot air balloons. It's not Santa, then Ada Twist, and SpongeBob, and Snoopy, and then a Smurf. No, Santa is not in the front, he is in the back. Everyone is waiting to see Santa. That is a place of honor. So what is in the back of David's procession? The Ark of the Covenant is in the back of the procession. And where's David? He's leading the way. He's worshiping God with dancing, and he's dancing with all his might because the king of kings is in the place of honor at the back of the parade. One of the songs they may have been singing maybe be in the song that David wrote. We call it Psalm 24. Here's a couple of verses. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? Okay, let's stop. Right there. What's the answer to that question? Is David the king of glory? Is he the most important person in the procession? Is David the focus of attention? Well, you know the answer to that question. The answer is no. David is not the king of glory. Look at the lyrics to the song. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And then they sing it again in verse 9. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. It's inauguration day for King David. And to everyone's surprise and even shock, the procession is not fundamentally about David. It's about the Lord, because the Lord is the king of kings. So look at where David is in the procession. And look at what he's wearing He's not dressed in the fine robes fit for a king. He's wearing the linen undergarment of a priest, and he's singing and dancing with all his might. He is processing up to Jerusalem, wearing the undergarment of a priest because he knows how he intends to lead his people. He's going to be a king who will lead the people as a priest His main job of leadership is to lead the people into the presence of God. And he knows he is not worthy to wear the robes of a priest, so he just wears this undergarment and invites people to worship God. So look at where David is in the procession. Look at what he's wearing and what he's doing. And finally, look at where he places the Ark of the Covenant as they enter the city. They place the Ark in a tent, in a simple tent. That David had erected in the center of the city. This is not the tabernacle. The ark was not placed in the tabernacle behind the thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies. David placed it in a tent where everyone could have access to God's presence. And that's where it stayed for the 33 years of David's reign. This open access to the presence of God was unprecedented in the Old Testament. This open access to God pointed to a reality that Jesus Christ would make possible for us a thousand years later. As one scholar has put it, David's prayer tent was a New Testament reality in an Old Testament world. After seven years of waiting and planning and praying and discerning, This is David's leadership strategy. Tyler Staten, the pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, has shaped my thinking for this message in many, many ways, and I'm grateful for his insights and his wisdom. In his book, Praying Like Monks and Living Like Fools, Tyler writes, After his entrance into the city, David went into the palace, sat down with his board of advisors, and laid out the plan. David hired 288 worship leaders, prophets, and elders to pray and worship in that tent, presumably 24 hours a day. He was a king leading a military during an era of tribal warfare, warfare, and he just emptied the national savings account for prayer. Can you imagine the meeting where he laid out that strategic plan? Dave? Dave? We're going to need to beef up our defenses against the armies that are literally surrounding us. And you want to spend it all on a prayer tent? Yeah, that's exactly right. Then he did it. David's stunning strategy to face the challenges and opportunities of his day was to put prayer back at the center of God's people. And you know what? David's, Reign as king was the political high-water mark in the history of Israel. The presence of God was David's political strategy. And that pattern that emerges is this. If we put prayer at the center, if we prioritize the presence of God at the heart of our lives, at the core of our church, The kingdom of God will end up in the city and in the world around us. When God is at the center, when prayer is at the center of our lives and our life together, God is going to be at work powerfully in us and through us to impact the world around us for good. Friends, the challenges and opportunities before us as a church and as individuals and families are simply too great. Confession. For far too long, I have been guilty of putting really good things like my abilities, gifts, skills, wisdom, knowledge at the center of my life. Those are all good things. They just don't belong at the center. So here's my challenge. Let's follow David's crazy example and make prayer our strategy and see what God will do in us and through us. Could it be that God wants to make our church a house of prayer for all nations? And since each one of us who have entrusted our lives to Jesus have been filled with God's Holy Spirit, that makes each one of us a temple of God's Spirit. How can our lives be like David's tent, where people from all nations, all peoples, can come and meet with God? Next week, Advent begins. And each week leading up to Christmas, we'll be talking about who this God is who invites us to come to him in prayer. Who is this God we meet in Jesus Christ? Well, as we will discover again, he is the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the light of the world, and Emmanuel, God who is with us. This Advent season, we are going to once again consider who our God actually is. Because the greatest gift of Christmas is an intimate relationship with God. And that, my friends, is what is being offered to you and me by God himself. And then in January and February, we are going to focus on learning how to pray. Each Sunday, we will be working our way through the Lord's Prayer. One, of, uh, one day, one of Jesus' disciples came up to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Out of all the things they could have asked him, that is what they wanted to learn how to do. And Jesus's answer was what we now call the Lord's Prayer. So for eight weeks, beginning in January, we will use Pete Gregg's book, How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People, as one of our guides. We will be offering you also the opportunity to go through Pete's excellent small group study called The Prayer Course either in your existing small group or in a new group, you can sign up for starting in early December. And today at 9.15 in that room right over there, you can join others for our 30-minute guided prayer gatherings in the Malka Room. We will be praying for our church, our community, one another, and the world. We'll be doing that every other Sunday until December 18th. Emmanuel, or email. How are you doing with that battle or with the battle with other things that can prevent you from making space for God? Our loving, compassionate, merciful, gracious God is inviting you and me to spend time with him. Maybe it's time to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives and make more space for God. I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up Prayer to lead us in song and worship. But as we close this time together, I want to give you some time to think about what we've been talking about. And if you would like to acknowledge to God your desire to make more space for him in your own life and to grow in your life of prayer, then one of the things I might ask you to do or consider doing right here as I pray is to simply open your hands as a sign to God that says, Lord, I want to know you better. I want to know more about how to cultivate my relationship with you. Teach me to pray. So if you'd like to do that, as I lead us in prayer, just turn your hands up saying, Lord, my hands are open. Teach me to pray. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you, the creator of the universe, the all-powerful God, the holy God, the one who lives in unapproachable light, came to our world in Jesus and took upon yourself the sins of the world so that we might have a way to be in a relationship with you. God, as you look across your people here or watching online, as they turn their hands or open hands to you, Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon them? Help them to eliminate things in their lives so they can make space for you Draw them, draw us to yourself. Lord, we want to put prayer at the center of our lives, the center of our church, and we wanna see how you want to change us and use us so that your kingdom will show up in, my, in our interactions with others, show up in our city and in our world. So come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I give the final blessing, uh, again, if you uh, would like to join us at Espresso or downstairs for food, that would be awesome. And if you have um, prayer needs, the prayer corner will still be outside the door, and they would love to lift up anything that's on your heart right now. And now receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and his countenance be upon you. And may you know deep in your heart the wonderful love of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. God bless those of you in line. Thank you, ahui ho, we'll see you next week.
0: Let it be known that First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu is a house of prayer. We hope that prayer to Jesus will be at the center of your life, and we hope that you'll join us for the sermon series on prayer in the coming weeks. If you want to catch up on or listen again to previous services, visit our websites, fpchawaii.org and thevinehawaii.org. You can also find First Press Sermons on most major podcast services and on YouTube. Join First Prez for church. Come on down. We meet in person and online. Services are Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. at the Ko'olau campus, 10 a.m. at the Vine in Kaka'ako, or online on the websites. And remember, when you visit the website, check out the news page to keep up with everything that's going on at First Prez. You can also sign up for emails, listen to or watch sermons, and lots more. And as always, if there's anything that First Prez can do for you, please reach out through the website or just call 808-532-1111. For Senior Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First president I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you, stay safe, and thank you for listening. This sermon podcast is copyright 2022 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu.